Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, I'm delighted to welcome live in the studio, journalist and broadcaster, John Yang, class of 1980. John, can you tell me a bit about your current professional role to start out? Well, right now, first of all, let me tell you what great it is to be back in Middletown, back on campus on a, uh, on a dre typically dreary December right. day for Middletown, as I recall. Um, I am now a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, which is the uh, hour-long nightly national news program on public broadcasting, uh, anchored by Judy Woodruff. Uh, I do a variety of things. I go out and do tape spots in the field uh, this year. I began, I, I joined PBS in um, uh, March of this year, so pretty heavy politics this year, uh, going out, talking to voters, doing issue stories. I also do in-studio segments uh, where we have discussions uh, with people about issues, uh, about events, uh, and newsmaker interviews. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Jill Stein about her, the recount effort mm -hmm. she's, she's launched. Um, and also occasionally anchor, occasionally filling in uh, at the anchor desk, mostly on holidays uh, the past year, but uh, uh, hopefully we'll be, we will be doing it a little more often. Great. Now, I understand that you are from Ohio originally. Can you tell me a bit about your experience there? That's right. Grew up in a little town in southern Ohio called Chillicothe. Population then was about 25,000. Okay. Uh, sort of on the edge of, of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. uh, my family was there because there was a paper mill there, and my dad was the engineer, uh, or an engineer at the research lab that was affiliated with the paper mill. Um, I always find talking about, you know, growing up or, or you know, childhood life a little difficult because you can never compare it to anything. It's the only thing I knew. It was, in a lot of ways, this is in the uh, early 60s, um, uh, sort of a throwback to uh, um, uh, sort of, I don't know if I'll leave it to Beaver or uh, 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 existence. I mean, I can remember you leave, left the house in the morning. Uh, you came back in the middle of the day for lunch. I was talking about the summers and when I wasn't mm -hmm. in school. Uh, the front door was never locked. So you sort of came and went. Right. Uh, there were times when I'm sure my mother didn't know where I was, but it didn't bother her. It didn't worry her because she could find me by just by calling, making a couple of phone calls in the neighborhood. Uh, walked to school alone through woods, as I recall. Uh, things I don't know that people would think of doing in, in today. Right, I think that, right. that just the nature of how things are different. But it was also very interesting because I, I always joke, uh, I mean, this little in many ways, redneck town in southern Ohio. Uh, I used to joke that Chinatown was our house. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was it. We were the, I mean, the only Asian uh, uh, family in this in this little community. Um, and it was a little bit, uh, I was the youngest of three. And my sister in particular was a really good student. So there okay. was always that. She was four years ahead of me. There was always getting her teachers, and them all rhapsodizing about what a wonderful student Wendy right, was right. Uh, and sort of having to live up to that. Uh, we lived there until I was 12 when we moved to Dayton, Ohio, mm -hmm. a, a bigger community. Uh, and I was only there for about a year before my parents um, sent me to, uh, I went to a boarding school in Northern, Northeastern Ohio, Western Reserve Academy. Which was actually my route to Wesleyan because okay. uh, a social studies teacher um, uh, there, Jim Gramantine, 
was a Wes, Wes alum okay. and talked up Wes and uh, got me interested. Did you think you would do a liberal arts education even before that or history that way as well? I think so. No, I think liberal arts. I think that that uh, and, and for me, it wasn't so much what I was thinking of as a, as, as much as it was what my parents were thinking right, of. Okay. My, my parents uh, had a very academic background. My father, my grandfather was president of a university in China. Uh, they both taught early on. Uh, uh, they, my father taught um, aeronautical engineering at Clarkson uh, mm, in upstate okay. New York. My mom taught chemical engineering there. Uh, my dad, as he says, uh, got into industry to make a, make a living, earn right. money to send us to college. Uh, my mother continued to teach and teach, uh, taught until, uh, until, uh, until she died. She taught math at Miami University. So I think that it was, that was always uh, that was always sort of preordained. Right. It right. was never a question. The fact that I went away to school for high school, there was never a question about that. That was preordained. Um, actually, my brother, who's ten years older than I am, went to high school in Chillicothe, went away to the University of the South in Tennessee, okay. a small, yeah, rigorous Sewanee. liberal yeah. arts, yeah, in Sewanee, Tennessee. And essentially came back and said the only thing he was prepared for that Chillicothe High School had prepared him for was Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and actually, he had gotten into Deerfield. I'm so, uh, oh, okay. But, From Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, but didn't want to leave his uh, okay. friends. Didn't okay. wanted to wanted to graduate with his friends, and I mom see, and dad I allowed see. said okay. went along with that. But then after that. Uh, my sister went to a boarding school in Cleveland called the Laurel School, okay. and then I went to Western Reserve Academy. So I think it was always a, a place like Wesleyan was always in the in the in the cards. I think yeah, yeah. Um, my parents I think were very pleased when um, uh, when uh, Mr. Gramantine at WRA started talking about Wesleyan. Okay. Because uh, this is the sort of school they had in mind. For okay. Me. Okay. And. Uh, what were some of the things you were involved with here on campus? I tell you, you know, it's funny. I really wasn't involved in that much. Uh, I, in terms of extracurricular stuff, I had done a lot of that in high school. Um, I was at the newspaper. I did uh, drama in high school. When I got here, and I had actually taken a year off okay. between high school and college. I had been advanced when in elementary school, I could read when I was in kindergarten, so they advanced okay. me to first okay. grade. So I took a gap year before a gap year, before it was called a gap right, year. Right, right. Uh, my mother, I think very wisely, thought that socially I needed to catch up. Mm -hmm. She didn't think it would be a great idea for me to go to college at whatever I was then, 16, mm -hmm. 17, mm -hmm. that, that to wait a year. Um, so in that, in that year, I worked for a newspaper in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, okay. And so I didn't do anything for the Argus because that sort of felt, I sort of felt like, well, I had, you know, done I had yeah. done that professionally okay. Okay. in a way. Uh, I did, uh, I mean, I really didn't do all that much okay. extracurricularly other than, um, uh, other other than uh, going to John B's on Friday and, okay. and Saturday nights, <laughs> that was the extent of my. Right, right. And I have to admit, I did. Um, uh, also, I have to say that the that the high school I went to was very very rigorous. Mm -hmm. It taught me. It I learned a lot of really good habits there. Uh, it was very small. 
uh, I mean, my, my graduating class was 50. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, you couldn't hide in class. Right, right. I think, I, I honestly think, I, I, did, I never worked as hard as I did as I did in high school. Uh, and didn't get terribly good grades. Um, and then coming to Wes, I think, I, I, I think because all those habits were instilled in me, I found it a little easier than some of my classmates and some of my hallmates who had gone to public okay. schools, big public schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, public schools where their graduating class was bigger than Wesleyan. Right. Uh, uh, and so I think I just sort of, um, I, I, I enjoyed myself. Uh, I did well academically. Um, I did a lot of things. Uh, I was a government major in part, I have to admit, one of the reasons choosing that major because it wasn't terribly heavy in terms of requirements. I was able to, to dabble in other things. And this was at a time when Wesleyan had no requirements. There was no sort of uh, core requirement. So I did a lot of economics. I did a lot of history. Um, I did, uh, I mean, just things that interested me. And I found that when, and I, this is something that's continued if something really interests me, I can. I that's what I. I will just spend a lot of time on that, and so that's really what I did. I, I pursued. Uh, I pursued a lot of of interests. Now, since you had had some experience with journalism before coming to Wesleyan, was it always your intention to pursue that after graduation, or was that something that came up later? No, that really got got set in me in high school. Okay. Um, it was I was the the summer between my junior and senior years in high school was the summer of Watergate. Right. And I was glued to the television watching the hearings. Uh, it was uh, I mean I think I wanted to be Woodward or Bernstein, and that really was set in high school. I I discovered. It, it, it's it's funny. I think that if you do something well or if something comes easily to you, you don't appreciate it. And it took a teacher in high school to say, you know, you're a good writer. <laughs> uh, and I always wanted to know what was really going on behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And also, and I have no idea where this came from. I also loved to be the first person to tell people things, to rush in and say, you won't believe what just happened. And when I discovered you can get paid for doing those right, two things, right, right. that really set me. Set me. I did internships uh, all through um, uh, all through college every every summer. Okay. Uh, the first one I went back to the paper I worked for in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, the second and third summers uh, internships I found at the Career Resource Office back when it was in, in North College. Right. Uh, the Boston Globe. Uh, between uh, sophomore, junior years, and Newsweek between um, junior and senior. And then how did your plans for after graduation develop? I applied to every uh, sort of medium-sized daily in America, it seemed like. Uh, I was graduating into a newspaper recession, uh, a time when newspapers were not doing well. Uh, I found it very hard. I was getting rejection after rejection. I wasn't even getting interviews. Um, and then the guy who ran the internship program at the Boston Globe calls me and says, you're graduating soon, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, how come we haven't heard from you? I said, Bob, you, you kept telling us you don't hire people straight out of college. And he said, well, there are always exceptions. 
he said apply. You know, it turned out there was a reporter who was retiring. Okay. Uh, and so I applied and got uh, and uh, got got a job at the Globe, which was I mean it was unusual they because they really didn't take people straight mm-hmm. out of college. But that internship summer I think helped. I they knew me, I knew them, uh, and that that helped. Were you given more responsibility, higher level input as a result of the fact that they didn't typically hire new college grads, didn't necessarily have some place to park them? No, I, well, I was—I mean, I—I was started off like any new hire. Okay. Uh, I worked uh, four to midnight, uh, third no, f- uh, what was it? Friday through Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> Peach plum hours, uh, a plum shift. Uh, I did night cops. I did general assignment. I, you know, rewrote uh, uh, stories that were done during the day. There was the, the, the Globe at that time. There were a lot of old timers. Uh, there was still the Evening Globe mm-hmm. and the Morning Globe. And the Evening Globe was really populated by guys in slouch hats. And, you know, if, if you, you look at the old front page movie from, from the 30s and 40s or whenever it was, those were the guys, and occasionally, and I can re- still remember the uh, uh, the city editor would drop. Co- they would leave, go home for the day, uh, and then the city editor would drop copy on my desk that they had all written during the day, and with a cigarette dangling from his mouth, he'd say, "Put these in English, will you?" <laughs> <laughs> so I'd rewrite. Right. I'd rewrite what they had written. Uh, and I was where I was worried <laughs> that they would see the stories under their byline that weren't worth they filed, but no one ever said anything. That's funny. <laughs> and you moved on to time from there. As I, I did. What, under what circumstances? It was, I mean, it was not very, very little of what happened in my early career was planned. And actually much, much of my later career was planned. Um, I had met someone at a party, and I can't remember what the circumstances were, uh, who was a Time correspondent in Boston at the time. And, you know, we did the usual journalist thing. Oh, I loved your story about the, you know, the woman who weighed her baby or, you know, something like that. And Time was looking for young correspondents. And so she recommended me, and I went through the interview process and got an offer. And for me, it was a chance to move from the city desk, from night side reporter covering cops, covering, you know, fires, uh, and go onto a national stage, mm-hmm. cover stories of national significance. By definition of being in time, they were of national significance. So I did that. I went to uh, the Boston Bureau. I went to the Atlanta Bureau uh, and then went to the Washington Bureau and found myself four years out of Wesleyan covering a presidential campaign in 1984. And that was that was really what I wanted to do. I wanted, as, as, as I say, it was Watergate that sort of got me, right, sparked right. me. I always wanted to go to Washington. I always wanted to be a political reporter. Uh, uh, ironically, I never really wanted to be a White House correspondent. I always wanted to cover Congress. Uh, and that, again, to take it back to Wesleyan, is a result of Richard Boyd, uh, my, uh, my advisor in the government department, uh, uh, and the the section on Congress that he taught it just it just there was something about it, something about the way he presented it. Uh, it just fascinated me, and I just I, I and it may have also been the Watergate hearings. Now I think about it, but okay. that's what I want. That's where I wanted to go. 
And what was it like covering a presidential, going from the city desk at night covering cops to covering a presidential election in a relatively short period of time? I, I honestly, I, I mean, looking back on it, I did a horrible job. I did because I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, it's literally a case. Uh, although, although I think I learned as the as the year went on. Sure. My, the, my original assignment was John Glenn, mm-hmm. the former astronaut, former senator from Ohio, uh, who had a horrible campaign. Uh, and I think I learned a lot from the from watching a horrible campaign. Uh, and then I went. I did. I did a little Jesse Jackson. I did a little Walter Mondale. Uh, and then I did Bush and Ferraro at the end. Um, but I, I got better. I mean, it, it really was sort of being thrown into something. And one thing I've always tried not to do is to say, well, I can't do this because I've never done it before. Is you just, you get assigned something and you say, great. Right. And you go charging off. And you may, I often went charging off and asking colleagues, so what am I doing? What, what, what <laughs> how do I do this? Right, what? right. Uh, but it was it was a great experience. And when did you move to the Washington Post? I went to the Washington Post in 1990. I had been uh, at uh, between time and the Post. I was at the Wall Street Journal. I, I okay. found I missed daily journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Time Magazine, you know, you'd be gathering string all week, and then file on Wednesday or Thursday night, and then it would all be assembled in in in. In, uh, on Friday in New York, and I, especially on the campaign, I would see my colleagues early in the week when something happened, this you know this frenetic activity, this rush to deadline, and I discovered I missed it. Right. Uh, I, I I missed that that daily adrenaline rush of rushing to deadline. Uh, so I went back into into daily uh, journalism. And the post was someplace I always wanted to go. I think again, it's probably because of Watergate, mm-hmm. because of uh, because of Woodward and Bernstein, and also being a political junkie. Uh, I loved David Broder. I, I always read David Broder, his columns and uh, uh, and his daily coverage. Uh, and also, I could, I still remember this. David Broder is one of the was one of the most generous people I've ever met and and the hardest working. I can still remember 1982, I think it was. I was the correspondent for Time Magazine in Boston. Michael Dukakis, is, who had lost the governorship, was mm-hmm. running to get it back. I was spending uh, the day with Dukakis, and I'm told another reporter is going to join us for the afternoon, and it was David Broder. And this is my hero, my idol, and he introduces himself. Hi, I'm Dave Broder. I felt like saying, well, no kidding. And then he said, and then he immediately started asking me about what was going on in Massachusetts and what was going on in the campaign. And I thought that was, you know, uh, uh, I, something that I, I, I remember. Flash forward two years, 1984. I'm arriving uh, with the John Glenn Traveling Press Corps into some... I don't know. I think it was a retirement home in in New Hampshire, and uh, bustling in, and I feel an arm reach out, grab me, and it was David Broder. He said, "John Yang, welcome to New Hampshire." That's great. <laughs> we had not seen each other in two years. I was I was nobody, you know, uh, and it was just something that that really made an impression on me. That's a good. And then to end up working with him, mm-hmm. he was just uh, he was he was the best. 
So was the Washington Post, uh, you mentioned you were at the Wall Street Journal yeah. first. Yeah. Was that, let's actually start there. Was that a total change of face being in more business journalism or taking a business take on politics? What did you feel like your niche was? You had to, I mean, to show that you were serious at the, at the, at the, at the Wall Street Journal, you had to cover business. Right. You, I, the, the goal was to eventually cover politics. Uh, and that was the understanding I had, but they said, you've got to do something uh, business-related first. So I covered banking regulation, okay. which was a great education for me. I had, didn't, I had never really covered business. Mm. Uh, I still remember, I mean, I still remember uh, in banking, there was the, the New York Times correspondent who had to explain to me that in banking, an asset was a loan. Uh, while a liability was a a, uh, a deposit, <laughs> because the asset the loan is the loan is something they own and were earning right, making money on. Right. The deposit is something that wasn't theirs. They had to give they had to give back if someone asked for it. Um, I learned about the sort of the the fourth uh, branch of government regulatory mm-hmm. uh, uh, agencies and bureaucracies. Um, it was also a hot time for that. It was during sure. the the savings and loan crisis, right. uh, bank failures in the Midwest with farms, and uh, um, uh, and also the um, uh, the time when a lot of people were. Uh, it was the deregulation of savings and loans, and so people were using them uh, for all sorts of risky risky things. And uh, Charles Keating of, the, of Lincoln Savings and and that sort of thing. Um, so that was a great education for me. Okay. And also, was, I can I, I can still remember being a newbie, uh, and part of I was part of the, covering the Fed because they have they do banking mm-hmm. regulation, and they had a great guy there who was the uh, um, uh, the head of public relations, uh, uh, Joe Coyne, who used to be the AP reporter who covered the Fed. And one day he calls me after the markets closed to tell me that the Fed has made a big move on banking regulation and I had to acknowledge to him I didn't understand the significance and Joe said well you know if I were the reporter covering this I'd ask (laughs) (laughs) and he'd say I'd ask so and so and then I would answer (laughs) right right (laughs) and that's how I reported the story that's how I wrote the story so what eventually led you to pivot back to the Washington Post, and I suspect more into your comfort zone. Yes, yes. Well, I covered. I had been covering Congress okay. and had gotten it noticed uh, on that on on the Hill beat. Um, it was the time of the Jim Wright um, uh, when House Speaker Jim Wright was had was had to resign because of some ethics violations. It was the rise of Newt Gingrich. Uh, he was moving into leadership. It was sort of the, the precursor of the, the Republican takeover. And um, the Post had noticed my coverage and uh, asked me to join. And I couldn't, I mean, it, it was the opportunity to, to, to sort of make another leap, uh, to move up another rung, another step. Okay. Now you all told, spent about two decades, give or take, in print journalism. Yeah, about 20 years, yeah. What was appealing about the move to broadcast? Did you have hesitations about doing that? Were there trade-offs to doing that? Were you excited about doing that? It's funny. I It was something that, that had always intrigued me, but also because I had gotten to a certain level 
in print. I thought if I went to broadcast, I'd have to start over again. I'd have to go back and, and go to some small local station and move my way up and, and, and learn learn how to do that. Uh, but through a, a, a sort of long series of events, I ended up doing a television project for The Post uh-huh. and discovered I, I liked it. I got offers out of it. Um, and... I was at sort of the, the, the a pivot point at the Post as well. I had done just about everything at the Post that I wanted to do and that they could see me doing. There were a few things. I, I wanted to go overseas, but for some reason they just never see, saw me that way. Uh, and I loved the Post. I loved working there. I loved uh, the Graham family, the ownership. Um, but then... I got these offers to go into television and it was, I was about 40. Uh, and what it really came down to, well, there were a couple of things it came down to. They were talking to me about moving into management, which had its appeal. And I was doing something, I was already started doing some things that, that, and I enjoyed it. Uh, there were some things I missed about being on the street, being on sort of on the front line. But, I finally came down to if if someone was willing to pay me to learn a new skill at age 40, why not do it? And I also made sure that I could come back. Okay. <laughs> I did not burn bridges, and, and uh, Don Graham, the publisher, actually took me aside and said, uh, you know, we hate to lose you, but if, if you find you don't like it or they don't like you, come on back. I felt that I, I felt the comfort to take that jump. Um, I mean, there were some trade-offs. It is an entirely different, um, entirely different operation. You you can't. Uh, the one thing I loved about print is that that you could go somewhere and recede into the background mm-hmm. and really be a fly on the wall and let an event play out around you. Television. Just by the fact of being there with a camera, with microphones, with lights, you've already changed the event. Right. It's already going to be different than it would be if you had if you weren't there. I missed sort of getting little nuggets and details that I could get into uh, a print story. Um, on the other hand, I liked the collaborative effort in television. Um, you're working with a producer. You're working with a cameraman. Uh, and a sound man, and they're all contributing something. And also, quite frankly, all contributing to making me look better than I probably deserve to, than I, than I would have otherwise if I'd been on my own. Um, uh, and so that, that, uh, that appeals to me. And I also like being able to tell, use other things to tell stories. Use my voice, use uh, pictures, use uh, you know, graphics. Mm-hmm. Uh, other tools to tell stories. So take me back to that first time that you were on the air. <laughs> what did that feel like? So you, you weren't trained as a broadcast no. journalist. You didn't go to school for that. You didn't have all of this prep work for that. What was it like the first time you were on camera? Well, they uh, the, what I did for the Post uh, was I did a business report on um, uh, the local NBC station in, in Washington before the Today Show, on the show that's before the Today Show. So I've never been a morning person. So number one, I'm half asleep. Uh, number two, actually, we had rehearsed this. Now that I now that I think back to it, 
I was reading a teleprompter, which is, I thought, you know, I, it never occurred to me that that would be the hardest thing I had to learn was reading a teleprompter because I, I had what I now learn is called prompter lock is that I was just fixated on the teleprompter waiting for the next word to come up and just sort of hanging on every word as it appeared. Uh, and the post had hired to do this project, a woman who used to be in television used to be uh, worked for post Newsweek stations and she hired a, a studio for a day uh, and got me in there and just had me work on a prompter. And that was the hardest thing. Um, and also just learning to relax and sort of just being, uh, be, be, they, they put you in, a, in this incredibly unnatural situation and tell you, just act naturally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to cover some pretty significant news events very quickly, including the 2000 election between uh, George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush, I should say. No, w. no Bush. W. Bush. Yeah, <laughs> I had covered H. W. for the post. You covered H. W. before. Yeah, right? that's where I'm getting. Yeah. So yeah. the 2000 election, of course, was W. Bush and uh, Al Gore. Yeah. And then followed not too far after that by 9/11. Right. Did that feel? Uh, was that overwhelming? Was that invigorating? I mean, these were huge. I mean, even even by today's standards, yeah. enormous news events. No, it was invigorating. It was. It was. I mean, a lot of it was they 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 were. They were building, or they were, uh, yeah, building on my the background in politics that I had built up in print, that I had developed in print, and then I just had to learn how to translate that into television, how to make television out of that, and to cover uh, uh, cover the elections. Um, but again, I you know I keep thinking back that that I I as a kid I would watch election nights i just hang on every you know every little twist and turn of the coverage i can remember as a kid watching the conventions um uh, when back when network television did it gavel to gavel uh and that was the big deal to be a floor correspondent um so it was invigorating i, I enjoyed it I, I covered bush in the primaries in 2000 uh, and then switched to gore in the general um and all I can remember is that the or what my my lasting memory of election night that year was we had done Gore had done I think a thirty six hour fly around um, in the in the last push and so we were all exhausted and all I could think of was tonight it will be over mm. <laughs> and then standing on that platform in Nashville and it wasn't over. <laughs> And, you know, this is the, the, the Florida when when Gore pulled back his concession, he had conceded. He had called uh, he, he was on his way over to concede. He called uh, uh, he called Bush to take it back, saying that we're I, you know what we're seeing. We're seeing things in Florida. We think we ought to wait. And then that led to the recount. And right, it right. just it seemed like it was never going to end. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you were transferred to Jerusalem to be ABC's Middle East correspondent in 2002. And you mentioned in a past interview that that role was the first time you felt like an adult. And can you tell me what you meant by that? Well, partly it was just the idea of moving overseas. Mm -hmm. The idea, I mean, every other move I made before 
Uh, I mean, it was all, you know, locally or within within the states. But then the idea of suddenly picking up my belongings, having my belongings picked up, put on a ship. Right. Uh, and then sent over and also having, you know, getting a visa to live and work in Israel as a journalist, uh, going over into uh, living in a place where uh, and covering a story that was literally life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a, a, at a time it was the second intifada. Uh, you had bus bombings in Jerusalem, in Tel Aviv. Uh, you had, uh, you know, live fire. I was going into the West Bank and Gaza uh, in situations where there was live fire. I had got to, to prepare for this. They had sent me to uh, what's euphemistically referred to as a hazardous environment training. Okay. <laughs> what did that entail? It entailed uh, learning the different kinds of uh, of live fire you could face. How to tell the difference between gunfire mortars and mortars how to tell incoming from outgoing uh learning first aid um you know learning how to spot landmines what to do if you got caught in a landmine field uh it's just see it was no longer uh i mean there's a lot of journalism that's a prolonged adolescence you're in this big room, like a classroom, and there's, you know, you're uh, a lot of really smart people uh, who are very verbal and a lot of banter and uh, byplay, and you go out and you ask uh, impertinent questions of people. And, but this was this was this was this was real. Right. <laughs> it suddenly seemed very real to me, uh, and it was also the run up to the um, to the first Iraq War. It was after nine eleven. Um, the I they for the war I was in Tel, Tel Aviv because before uh, in the other well the previous actually this was not the first Iraq war the first Iraq war was under H W Bush right and Saddam had sent scuds into Israel and so they thought it might happen again um, uh, and then and then after that it was a lot of time after the war it was a lot of time in Iraq. Um, and it just was a very it was it, it was a fascinating story, but it was also very real. I mean, it, it, you were you were living the story during the Intifada, during the attacks, the Palestinian um, the tensions between the Palestinians and the Israelis in Israel. You were living the story. It's a very small community, Israel. Uh, it did not take long for that story to have a personal impact on me. You would hear you'd be I can still remember be sitting in the garden of the, my little uh, where I lived and you'd hear an explosion and suddenly the air I, and this, it's a sound I will never forget and I also will never forget the, the air suddenly filled with sirens that's how you knew it was it was because occasionally you get sonic booms of the, mm-hmm. the fighter jets flying overhead uh, I can't remember how long I'd been living in Israel. Uh, my doctor and his daughter were killed in a cafe bombing down the street from where I lived. Uh, it was it was it was real life. It was you were living it. Uh, uh, it was. I mean, other colleagues said uh, who sort of I think enjoyed the war coverage more than I did. Said it's you're covering a war, but you're sleeping in your own bed at night. Mm. Uh, I agree, but I also found that a little unnerving. Right, right. <laughs>
And what ultimately brought you back to the U.S.? How long were you there? I was there about three years. Okay. Um, and eventually it was just that. It was a, I had uh, I had a really I had a particularly bad day, uh, a, a day of a series of close calls in Gaza. Okay. And I came back and I just said I can't do this anymore. <laughs> right. What have been some of the stories that have had the most personal meaning to you or that you've taken the most pride in? You know, I, I have covered a lot of big events, uh, presidential campaigns, uh, you know, as I say, the events in Afghanistan and Iraq. But to me, the stories that I find the most personally satisfying are the small stories, the stories about people um, uh, that are just stories about people who are dealing with hardships that I could never imagine, that are uh, have or dealing with successes that I could never imagine. I mean, I think back. Uh, my, uh, I was just before joining PBS. I was in Chicago for NBC, and I did a story. Um, uh, Senator Mark Kirk, who was defeated this fall. Uh, had a, a, a really bad, debilitating stroke. Uh, and I discovered, and I can't remember how I found this out, it may have been someone from the hospital, the rehabilitation hospital who called me, that during this, he had developed this very close relationship with a young boy who had had a very debilitating stroke when he was nine years old. And as part of his therapy, he wrote a letter to the senator, which was just this really delightful letter talking about, uh, uh, you know, my advice to you is to, you know, listen to your therapist and really work hard in therapy because you'll find, I mean, it, it, this, this, this kid, this nine-year-old boy who was a terrific young man, as, a, as I learned when I met him. And so I, I did a story about mm -hmm. this, this relationship uh, and got to know Kirk pretty well, but uh, more importantly, I got to know I got to know the young boy pretty well. Um, and again, talking about things that I can't imagine, I can't imagine this ten-year-old boy learning to walk, having to have to learn how to walk again, mm -hmm. having to learn have to how to read again, having to learn uh, how to you know speak again. Uh, and I, I, it's just it's it's one of those things that. It, it it's it's just I feel like I got so much out of meeting him and getting to know him, and of course his family feels constantly sending me notes about you know they talking about how appreciative they were that I was I told the story, but I mm -hmm. I felt I feel appreciative to them for allowing me to tell their story. It's those sorts of stories that 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 I re those are the ones I remember. Right. Would you still like to achieve in your career? I don't know that there's anything that I that's still lacking. As much as it is, I just still want to continue to tell stories. I still want to continue to tell stories that are important to people, that touch people, that uh, illuminate. Uh, who I think it was Lippmann who t talked about journalism being this flashlight that constantly you know moves from one thing to another illuminating it taking out of the darkness um i think that um 
after the presidential election and we going into going into a period where we really don't know what's going to happen i think it's important um and this is something i learned at the post really i think accountability journalism is very important to hold these people accountable to what they say they're going to do uh and what they do do um i i just think it's to continue to continue rather than uh that there's anything that sort of I feel that's left undone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for your 21-year-old self? <laughs> ah, boy, that's a good one. Um, I think, I really do th- believe this. I think that they're looking back, There, are, there's nothing I regret doing. Uh, there are some things I regret not doing. Um, I do regret I think I regret not making the switch into broadcasting earlier mm. um, I think that it would have been good for me to go back <laughs> to, to sort of to start at the bottom and, w- and work my way up um, I think and actually this is something that I, I tell other 21 year olds I regret not taking a little time off and having a little fun I was so driven to go and get that job, that first job, and to get going. I regret not taking the time to maybe take a year off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, actually, I do regret my one of uh, my um, uh, one of my one of my roommates here at Wesleyan. And a friend of his, who's now ironically a good a friend of mine in Washington, he's the former head of the uh, chairman of the FCC, and his wife is a colleague of mine now, Ruth Marcus, John Lee, what's his name, ha- uh, Halsey Frank is my friend. He's an assistant U.S. attorney in Portland now. Went off to Europe for the summer, and I was going to go with them. Then I got a job. I wish I had had the guts or the I, yeah, it was guts to say you know I'm going to tell no, tell the globe no. Because I did say, can I defer? Can I? Okay. What if I come back at the end of the? What if I take the job at the end of the summer? And they said, no, <laughs> no, we want you. As a matter of fact, we want you here the day after graduation, which is what I ended up doing. I, I regret that. Okay. <laughs> John Yang, class of nineteen eighty. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. It was great. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.